Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcast. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 44 in our series for 2019. And today's date is Friday, November the 29th. First, I'll be talking to Justin Westnake, the founder and CEO of Sydney tech startup Vloggy, which is being billed as a Canva of video content production having built a platform to allow marketers with no filming skills or experience to crowdsource video campaigns anywhere in the world and create authentic, professional-looking video content to help bolster digital marketing efforts. And I'll be talking to Alex Joyner, Chief Economist at IFM Investors, looking at whether the house price rises in Melbourne and Sydney will create a wealth effect. You should celebrate yourself every day. But some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra. And I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. But now, let's talk to Justin Westnay. Justin, uh, tell us about these new features that uh, Vloggies bring for campaign videos. Yeah, thanks. So really, all the new features that we've introduced have all been in the works for a while. And it's really putting teams at the heart of the video creating process. And we think this is a, a sort of first. Filmmaking has always been very much a, a solo pursuit. So you're always looking at one person's perspective. And even when filmmaking, to give it a sort of grand title, involved teams, there was still a bottleneck. There was still a production person. Whereas we've actually flipped everything on its head. And we've said that, first of all, you do what used to be called post-production. You set a template. You set, you set the look and feel of a video. And then you actually get people, you build your crew or you, get, you build your team and you get people to actually contribute video clips. And then you just drag and drop and actually produce the video at the end. 
So it's sort of turning filmmaking in reverse. And all of these features we've been working on for about six or seven months, we've now just all pushed live. So in to take those one by one, we've put out a template builder. So for the first time, you can actually build a video template once and apply it to all of your videos. So again, previously, if you wanted to have the same look and feel, so if you think about a television series, they all look and feel the same. So the title sequence are the same, and the, the straps where you where you put people underneath, all of that is it all consistently formatted. But to do that in traditional editing, you have to make a clone essentially of the previous project and, and copy and paste and change the details. What we've done is we've made the text dynamic, which means it's stored in a database, and then it's rendered as per attributes already set in the template each time. So like I said uh, before, you make the template once and reuse it endlessly, and it will automatically change the words as per those that are in the database. So that's the template. We've also turned on some other features around Teams. So because we've changed our pricing structure to be a software as a service, this is all based around teamwork. So your team could be a small team of people traveling together who want to make a highlights video of, of their trips. It could be large corporations wanting to harness community storytelling, or it could be somewhere in between. It could be a Facebook group with hundreds of hundreds of engaged followers in the audience, and they need a way to easily get those people to contribute video. To give you an example, Leon, we were talking this morning to a company that specializes in social sports club Facebook pages. So they run Facebook pages on behalf of your local kids' soccer club, or your, or I think they have rugby clubs as well. They already solicit pictures and match reviews from the the parents who who are members of those clubs. They've been looking for a way to actually get video in a in a unique place, as in a way for everyone to contribute video. And that's really what our Teams function does. It, it enables anyone who has a team large or small, to have one central place where all their video clips go in. And from there, anybody with with access rights can then pull those clips together into videos and download them for free in a template. Now, what's interesting with this uh, crowdsourced model, if you like, is that you've actually got technology that uh, allows a picker to pick the best contributions into a team project. Is that right? We do, yes. So the other bit of smart tech we've actually developed in-house is we've built an algorithm that will actually automatically pick the best six clips that are contributed into a crowdsourced project and make them into a 60-second buzz reel or highlights reel. Now, we have, we've loaded that in, and that's now live, but um, it still depends really on the, on the quality of the, of the video put in, so it's kind of as good as it gets out. So it's there, and it's there for the first time. We think that that automation, that's really where we're heading with this product, is ultimately we want to fully automate video production. And th- these are our first steps on that path. And, uh, I mean, in effect, uh, this could uh, work anywhere in the world where people have smartphones. Well, exactly. This was really the founding principle of, of Vloggy, was today 2.2 billion people carry around with them a high-definition video camera in their pockets at all times because in their smartphone. And when we first developed this two years ago, we actually built technology into our app that actually made the quality better than the the quality was at the time in the iPhone 6 and 7. We don't need that anymore because the quality of video now that's recorded natively 
through the camera of the latest um, smartphones is so superb that what we've done, we've actually created a way to, for people to pull those clips together. So you're, you're right on that. And uh, so in effect, you don't really need a video editor, do you? And post-production. Our platform will replace post-production for around 85% of use cases. So there are still many times, and we don't really compete with high-end video production. There will always be a place for that. So if you're doing a, a very slick promotional video, you want to fine-tune exactly how it's edited. So we're not really replacing uh, video editing, but we're augmenting it. And more importantly, there are 85% of companies and small groups who are not doing any video at all. So Facebook, you may know this, but Facebook intends to go 100% video by 2021. Now, there are 620 million Facebook pages out there, of which only 15% have any video content. So that's a lot of people who just can't afford, they either can't afford video or they find it too complex. So we're, what we're doing is we're positioning very neatly in that market, saying to people, okay, so if you need video, but you already have an audience of committed followers, you can make video with our platform. It won't be as slick as, um, although our videos actually look really great, good, but it won't be as slick as paying seven, eight, nine, ten thousand dollars $10,000 for a video production company, but it, it will enable you to get fresh video content every single week or maybe twice a week, which is relevant to your audience, but not only relevant, but made by your audience. So that's the kind of that's the niche we're filling. We're not really replacing video editing companies, but we are augmenting them. We're saying so Facebook groups is one core demographic, but the other problem that we're solving is that virtually everything that has a, a web page will also need a video. I say this because um, YouTube is now the second largest search engine after YouTube itself. What that means is that anyone under 30 instinctively searches for a video or something, as we would, I'm assuming that, uh, and I can't see you, but I'm assuming that you're the same sort of age as uh, David and I. We would Google something and we would look at text and images and then maybe the video, whereas anyone under 30 searches on YouTube and expects there to be everything. Now, the, the content on YouTube is still quite um, biased towards finished productions. So what we're doing is we're making a way for people to make video reviews of very tiny bits of very, very niche, ultra niche programming. So I'm doing a talk actually at the city of Sydney's Spark Festival on Saturday around why narrow casting will replace broadcasting. And this is really the trends of the future. Ultra, ultra niche video programming and this can only be done by dramatically reducing the cost of production, which is what we've done. And, of course, you have uh, vloggers from everywhere helping you, don't you? Yes. I mean, we so we started out as a, as a platform that would actually act as a two-sided marketplace. So we, we have vloggers from everywhere. And, in fact, I mean, just looking, at, uh, just looking at what we've had in the last week, we've had people in Switzerland, in Singapore, Finland, United States, France, China – so we, there are people using this platform all over the world um, already. However, until we turned on the teams and the projects, uh, which we've just turned on now, the, these people were just filming for because it was a simple way to, to make captioned videos and pull them together. But we think teams and, and, and projects will really make the big difference. So if you imagine that rather than being a vlogger going on and filming Sort of on spec, and, and there are people who are using it to, to document their. They're making travel journals and travel diaries with it. But if you go on and Leon, do you have a hobby? Uh yes, yes, yeah. What is it? Music. Okay, so music. So, so you'd be more likely to join a crew of vloggers that, that had a similar interest to yours about music. And say, if you were, 
uh, say if there was a, a project to, to film a recital, say at, uh, at, at, a, at a concert hall or, or street buskers or whatever it was, or, or cello players in, um, in the park, you would instinctively be more interested in joining that because you're already part of that community. And that's what these teams and, and projects features uh, allow. It allows people with similar interests to, to group together to make content. So we were talking this morning to, uh, I think I was saying this earlier, to a company that, that does sports pages for community sports groups, the Facebook pages for community sports groups. And what they need, they, they need a way for the parents of those teams to all contribute video clips and for our system to make a, a video highlights, a video montage. So if you imagine that as the as the need, it's a way for people to work together. And this is this is really the the big change in our in our site and big change in our business model is in enabling communities to work together to co-create video. And how are those communities managed? By themselves. So just like anybody can start a Facebook group, anybody can create a, a, a team. Anybody can be members of many teams and then they invite other people and there's a free tier as well. So if you're a very small group, you get to use the, the platform for free. Now, we expect people to move up to a paid tier. Um, so basically, once you get above 10 people in your, in your team, then you move into a, a paid tier. And then once you move into 500 people, you move into a, a premium tier. So you can kind of see that sort of business model. But... For, for very small groups, they can absolutely definitely use our platform for free and get three minutes of finished video made by their team members every month. Well, that's quite extraordinary, Justin. And uh, so we'll be watching Vloggy very, very closely. And thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. And now let's talk to Alex Joyner. Alex Joyner, what is happening with house prices? Well, what we've seen in the market, Leon, is... Melbourne and Sydney house prices in particular have really responded strongly after the election. So there's a bit of a, a confidence boost after the election. People were worried about negative gearing being taken away and these sorts of things. Uh, and then in the very much the uh, short term, after the election, we saw APRA relax lending restrictions and the Reserve Bank start to cut interest rates. And that's really put a rocket under house prices. Melbourne and Sydney house prices... As of today, in November, Melbourne is up 1.6% for the month. Uh, Sydney's up 2.2% for the month. And that puts them up, or Melbourne prices up, 7.8% since June and 8% since May. So it's not going to be too long before we see at least Melbourne and Sydney house prices recapture the highs that were recorded in 2017. And the Reserve Bank thinks thinks that's a good thing from the perspective of the wealth effect. Now, we haven't seen that come through in retail sales at all at the moment, and we're hoping it will. Uh, Retail sales and motor vehicles is where we should see that. But the thing that I worry about is credit growth. And I think that, you know, the Reserve Bank has admitted in its statement on monetary policy it has been surprised by the recovery in house prices and how aggressive it's been. And I think that this is threatening to translate into credit growth, and that's not something the Reserve Bank wants to see, because even though we had that decline in house prices of, say, 10 to 15%, we didn't have a decline in credit, and household uh, debt to GDP is still running at 120%, and that is very, very high. It weighs on the consumer and creates risks down the track should we have an economic reversal. So... That, in effect, is also goes to the issues of no retail sales, no consumer confidence, 
etc., etc. That's right. So what we're seeing with households, and we saw this uh, particularly with the low to middle income tax offset, is that households are very, very cautious at the moment. And what they're choosing to do rather than go out and spend anything they save from interest rate cuts or indeed this tax offset, uh, they're just putting that on their mortgage and, and paying that down more quickly because you know the sector overall is is being weighed down. It's not it's not that we're talking Armageddon. It's not that we're talking that this is a systemic risk to the Australian economy. It just weighs on people. Uh, the the BIS themselves have done research on this, and and the RBA has followed suit, and and called it the RBA has called it a debt overhang, and it's really just a a highly indebted household sector that is more cautious than it would otherwise be because it's looking to deleverage. Uh, and that's the thing that weighs on retail sales, but it all weighs particularly on that discretionary spend. Uh, people are still being squeezed on the non-discretionary side, so your bills, you know, utilities, education and health expenses. And then you know, what that does is effectively squeeze out, you know, going to restaurants, buying new clothes and this sort of thing. So, you know, it's really that discretionary spend that we're seeing suffer in this environment. So what of this wealth effect? Will it have a wealth effect at all? Well, the wealth effect is something that economists like to talk about. And the Reserve Bank has seemingly identified the wealth effect, but it's always been very, very difficult to differentiate the wealth effect from the what we call the income effect. And that's just people getting a higher income. Uh, The income effect has always been the stronger effect. Uh, The wealth effect is just a feeling. You know, it's a feeling of confidence that your uh, largest asset is rising. Now, the thing that makes me sceptical about the impact of the wealth effect this time around is that households have seemingly tweaked that lower interest rates uh, are not necessarily a good thing. And we're seeing that reflected in consumer confidence that is trending lower. So I would suspect that the wealth effect would be very, very weak in an environment where consumers might think that their house price going up is, is a good thing, but their overall sentiment is quite low, uh, they're not seeing their wages grow, and they're really not feeling like this is actually a, an all-in-all net good environment. So I think the, the wealth effect will be, this time around, disappointing. The other area that I think it will be disappointing is... The usual effect it has on the residential construction cycle. So usually what we see is if the Reserve Bank cuts rates and uh, we see house prices start to rise, you usually see developers come back into the market. Now I don't think we're going to see that this time around because developers are having a lot of trouble still getting finance. In Melbourne there is still some demand uh, in in the new home space. But Sydney, there's, there's much less demand. There's a lot, a lot more overhang in Sydney in the medium density space. Uh, vacancy rates in Sydney are actually rising. So there's, there's trouble getting finance, but it's also a question of is there going to be enough demand to be, to be putting on additional supply in that space? So I would argue that the answer would be no, and therefore we're not really going to see this upswing in dwelling investment that would add to growth, would add to jobs, uh, anytime soon. You know, that's probably a 2021 story before we get to that. So no wealth effect and very little impact on the construction industry. That's right. And, you know, the Reserve Bank's put a lot of store, particularly in the wealth effect, to be the thing that drives uh, consumer spending higher. Consumer spending in the economy has been weak in real terms. 
Uh, we've seen that in the GDP numbers, and we're likely going to see it again uh, in the third quarter GDP numbers that come out in the first week of December. The indications so far are not good. So we get an indication of the volumes of retail sales uh, in the September quarter retail sales report. And what we saw there was a negative 0.1% a decline in uh, retail volumes. And that's going to detract from real GDP growth. And the reason that that's surprising is that what economists thought was the low to middle income tax offset was going to be spent in that quarter because a lot of people did their tax return early uh, and that was in an effort to to get that income and we thought to spend it. But that hasn't occurred, uh, at least in the retail space. What we don't know going into the GDP numbers is what households spent on the services side. Now, it might be the case that Uh, Households have been very cautious on retail spending and that's why we saw the decline and they've spent all that money on the services side of their their spending. That remains to be seen. We'll see that in the the GDP. That is an upside risk, I guess, for the GDP. Uh, Numbers that we'll see uh, in the first week of December. But all in all, we're sort of still heading into that report with an expectation that the consumer will only add very, very modestly to growth. So what's your projection for the forthcoming GDP numbers? Uh, Right now I sit at 0.6% quarter on quarter and that would give us 1.8% year on year. Now that's sort of coming off the back of, you know, the deceleration we saw to 1.4% in the second quarter. And and what we're seeing here is to date that probably soft household sector but a little bit of a tailwind from uh, net exports we've seen that in the data already so that's probably going to amount to 0.2 percentage points Um, and what we're really seeing uh, and this is the story of the the national account so far this year is that it's the public sector that has been adding to growth and that's been in spending uh, and that's also been on the infrastructure side so the investment side so it's really been the public sector adding to growth. Now, while that's a good thing uh, in the near term, it's not a sustainable thing. And the problem that I have with the national accounts is that the private sector is actually contracting. Three out of the last four quarters of private demand, what economists call private demand, have been negative. Uh, Only slightly negative, but they have still been negative. And, you know, where you would like to see monetary policy getting traction is in that private sector. And that hasn't been the case. The private sector has remained very, very cautious. Now, if we don't get that recovery, uh, we won't get better GDP. And the Reserve Bank is looking for 2.3% um, by the end of the year. So that's the Q4 numbers. Uh, if we don't see that private sector recovery, then we won't see even that relatively modest forecast from the Reserve Bank uh, come to fruition. Uh, and that puts all the more pressure on them. So do you expect uh, to come into 2.3% eventually? Look, I think the Reserve Bank has had a track record of overestimating growth, and I think that that is the risk again. You know, I don't see, uh, at least in the near term, any impetus coming from either the tax cuts or the interest rate cuts that have been put through so far. Uh, interest rate cuts are usually a much longer-term story. They're a 12 to month, uh, 12 to 18 month story in terms of the stimulus that they deliver. I think it's probably too soon to see that have a, a material effect in the economy. I'd also put forward the case that the Reserve Bank is again being relatively optimistic with its the upswing it, ex, it expects in growth. You know, we have 
uh, a reserve bank that's uh, forecasting 3% by the middle of 2021. Um, and that would be above trend growth. Uh, but that's really, you know, what the Reserve Bank is trying to do. It's trying to impart uh, an air of confidence, I guess. But whether we believe that as economists, you know, you see the consensus be quite a bit weaker than that, you know, looking for maybe two and a half and two, or two to three quarter percent growth. So economists or private sector economists are still much more sceptical on the growth outlook than the Reserve Bank or the Treasury are. Well, Alex Joyner, that is fascinating stuff. And thank you very much for your time. Anytime, Liam. So what's happening in the news? Well, President Donald Trump declared that talks with China on the first phase of a trade deal were near completion after negotiators from both sides spoke by phone, signalling progress on an accord in the works for nearly two years. We're in the final throes of a very important deal, Trump told reporters of the White House. It's going very well. Trump announced on October the 11th that he had reached the outlines of a substantial but partial deal that would see China ramp up purchases of US farm goods, make new commitments to protect US intellectual property, refrain from manipulating its currency and further open its financial sector to foreign investors. Since then, the two sides have been wrangling over how to put the deal on paper and what tariffs the US will drop in exchange. The negotiations have been complicated by strong support in the US for pro-democracy demonstrators in Hong Kong and China's suspicions that the US is feeding unrest in the territory. Trump said that the US wanted to see things go well in Hong Kong, but added that he was confident of a good outcome. And Reserve Bank of Australia Governor Philip Lowe has hosed down the prospect of quantitative easing, saying it was another two rate cuts away. He asserted that the central bank would not move to such a tool until the official interest rate dropped to 0.25%, which was still a fair way off. In a speech to the Australian Business Economist on Tuesday night, Dr Lowe gave the market his strongest guidance yet on how the central bank would implement QE, saying that it would favour buying government bonds over corporate ones. Our current thinking is a QE becomes an option to be considered at a cash rate of 0.25%, but not before that, Dr Lowe said. And the ANZ Roy Morgan Australian Consumer Confidence Index has continued its losing streak, falling 2.8% last week to its lowest level in more than four years. Weakness is across the board. Current financial conditions fell 0.1%, while future financial conditions plunged 4.4%. Current financial conditions are still above average, but future conditions are now below. And the fallout continues from the Westpac scandal, where it has been accused of 23 billion breaches of laws aimed at hindering criminal money laundering and the financing of terrorism. With some of those breaches involving suspicious transactions in Southeast Asia, it is alleged Westpac has potentially facilitated the most heinous of crimes, the commerce of child sex abuse, with the Austrac lawsuit accusing the bank of failing to update its systems to properly vet thousands of transactions that could be linked to child exploitation and live child sex shows in the Philippines and other parts of Southeast Asia. And first, if you thought banks reformed since the Royal Commission, think again. Westpac removed Amanda Wood, its anti-money laundering chief, who reported the breaches to the board. She was told she didn't have the skills for the job and would have to take a more junior role after informing the bank it faced the largest fine in corporate history. The former senior Austrac official was also one of the Westpac managers who first informed the senior echelons of the bank that it had failed to notify Austrac of millions of transactions with foreign banks. All international money transfers must be reported to the money laundering investigator. And Westpac chief executive Brian Hartzer has stepped down effective immediately to be replaced by Chief Financial Officer Peter King as acting CEO, while long-standing Chairman Lindsay Maxted will bring forward his retirement to early 2020. 
Maxted announced the changes in a statement to the ASX at 8am on Tuesday, where he also revealed Westpac Director and Head of the Risk Committee, Ewan Crouch, would not seek re-election at the AGM on December the 12th. The board accepts the gravity of the issues raised by Ostrak, Mr Maxed said. And the corporate watchdog has launched an investigation into Westpac over potential legal breaches linked to the bank's money laundering compliance scandal ahead of a series of critical meetings with Lindsay Maxted and investors. The Australian Securities and Investments Commission, or ASIC, took the unusual step of publicly confirming it had started looking into possible breaches of laws it administers, most likely a reference to the Corporations Act. And with a corporate cop confirming it was investigating potential legal breaches by Westpac, Moody's said that while it was still too early to estimate the value of any potential financial penalties, the Austrac case was a credit negative because the damage to the bank's reputation and the adverse financial impact from potential fines and costs related to remedial action. Compliance problems of this nature also highlight the corporate governance challenges of maintaining tight controls at large and complex institutions and the negative spillover effects for the bank's reputations, Moody's said. And Westpac's board will withhold bonuses from all the senior executives as an interim measure in response to the money laundering compliance crisis engulfing the bank, with Chairman Lindsay Maxted set to hold crucial meetings with investors this week. Maxted pointed to actions the bank was taking in response to the crisis. It has closed LightPay, the product allegedly used for child exploitation payments. It has vowed to improve screening of payments and set up a financial crime board subcommittee. Westpac also said it would invest $25 million in data sharing to fight financial crime and make the financial crime function a direct report to the chief risk officer. It said any transactions that suggest child exploitation in high-risk areas would be prioritised and reported to Austrac in 24 hours, which it said was faster than required. And Westpac is on the brink of losing a state government banking contract worth more than $100 million after the bank was hit with 23 million anti-money laundering breaches and allegations. It ignored transaction patterns consistent with child exploitation activity. Victoria's state Labor government will demand Westpac explain why the bank shouldn't be dumped ahead of the tender process, which is scheduled to begin sometime in 2020. And scandal-plagued Westpac was set to be one of the two major banks to offer mortgages under the federal government's first home loan deposit scheme. Now, only National Australia Bank has been appointed as one of the major banks for the scheme, which allows lower middle-income earners to get financing without a large deposit. Westpac was axed as the other bank in light of the money laundering allegations it's currently facing. Meanwhile, Labor has called for the bank to face a federal parliamentary economic committee in light of the allegations. And while we talk about Westpac, the profitability of Australia's major banks is under threat thanks to low interest rates, intense competition and open banking, according to a report from ratings agency Moody's. Moody's Investor Service has reported on a number of factors that could erode ANZ, Commonwealth Bank, NAB and Westpac's stronghold on the mortgage market. The recent halving of the cash rate from 1.5% to 0.75% is one such factor set to have a larger effect on the big banks in the coming years. The report states these effects will be more intensely felt in 2020, as monetary policy only started easing in June 2019, which is three months before the end of the big banks' fiscal years. In addition to the challenge posed by low interest rates, the possibility of further fines for breaches of regulations and top-up provisions for customer remediation could restrict profit growth in 2020, Moody's said. And Woolworths Chief Executive Brad Banducci will forego a $2.6 million bonus this year after taking responsibility for the retailer underpaying staff by as much as $300 million over the last nine years. 
Mr. Banducci confirmed his short-term bonus of $2.6 million would not be paid in 2020. Woolworths chairman Gordon Cairns has also accepted responsibility for the underpayments and will take a 20% reduction in his board fees this year. And Qantas Airways is planning to lay off hundreds of workers before Christmas as the airline executes on its cost-cutting strategy. Preparations for hundreds of imminent redundancies come only weeks after it was revealed Chief Executive Alan Joyce earned $24 million, including the vesting of bonus shares awarded for the airline's strong financial performance. And private hospitals will need to hold greedy specialists to account if they want to survive the so-called death spiral gripping the health insurance industry, according to the latest report from public policy think tank Grattan Institute. The Grattan Institute has made a raft of recommendations identifying $2 billion in possible savings a year, declaring if the changes are realised, it could save private health care in Australia. If those savings were passed on to consumers, the report said, insurance premiums could drop by as much as 10%. And Macquarie Media Breakfast host Alan Jones' 2GB morning radio show has lost about half its advertising revenue after a boycott over the radio veterans' comments about New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern. Mr Jones has faced a commercial backlash since he made comments in August that Ms Ardern should be given backhanders and have a sock shoved down her throat. Despite Mr Jones apologising on air, Brands have continued to abandon his top-rating show that typically brings in $12 million a year and is worth under 10% of the network's revenue. And more than 7% of existing jobs in the Australian workforce stand to be displaced by technology advances in the next decade, and the country is short of the skills required to do the new roles that will replace them, according to a new report conducted by respected global forecasting firm Oxford Economics. The new study, commissioned by tech giant Cisco, found that 630 roles are set to be lost, with construction, utilities and manufacturing facing the most disruption. These sectors are predicted to suffer from an 8.4%, 7.5% and 5.5% net reduction in jobs, respectively. At the other end of the spectrum to the job losses predicted, the healthcare sector is tipped to be the most resilient to automation and other tech-led job losses. It was found to be the biggest job creator over the next 10 years, with a 7.4% increase in the number of jobs in the industry, driven by an ageing population and higher consumer spending, that would likely outstrip any disruption caused by new technologies. Other sectors set to gain jobs, according to the study, included hotels and restaurants, which will experience a 4.2% employment jump, and finance insurance, in which the number of jobs will increase by 5.5%. In some sectors, the impact of technological disruption is already being felt. Earlier this year, Telstra announced it would axe a quarter of its contractors over two years as part of its shift to reduce reliance on call centre staff and automate its customer service systems. The big banks have also been cutting back on customer service staff as more people access service via their mobile phones, and the need for branches has been reduced. And Rio Tinto's penchant for partnerships with some of the world's biggest companies has resurfaced, with the miner and technology giant Amazon working together to boost young Australian skills in science, technology, engineering and maths, or STEM. Rio has invited education providers to bid for funding grants to develop programs aimed at enhancing the STEM skills of school students. The mining giant will fund $10 million worth of programs, with the successful bidders to be chosen by an advisory board of business and education leaders. Amazon's cloud computing division, known as Amazon Web Services, will assist the successful bidders to develop and expand their ideas, along with small business advisory firm Blue Chili. The funding grants are the latest initiative from big business to improve the quality of STEM skills in the Australian workforce. Boosting STEM in Australia is a particular focus for Rio, which was one of Australia's earliest and biggest adopters of autonomous machines, robotics and data science. And a Chinese dairy conglomerate 
has scooped up a trove of seminal Australian dairy brands, including Big M, Dairy Farmers, Pura and Farmers Union. Under the arrangement, the China Mengnu Dairy Company will forecast $600 million for Lion's dairy and drinks business, which is currently owned by Japan's Kirin Group. Berry, Daily Juice and Juice Brothers are also included in the deal, which must be approved by government regulators. Regulators recently rubber-stamped the same Chinese group's $1.5 billion acquisition of Bellamy's organic infant formula. And Canadian convenience giant Couche Tard has made an $8.6 billion takeover for struggling Australian petrol group retailer Caltex. The Canadian group's friendly all-cash takeover would derail the service station IPO that Caltex announced only on Monday. Caltex has confirmed to the market that it had received an unsolicited, conditional, confidential, non-binding and indicative proposal from the Laval-based firm that operates 5,000 stores across Canada, the United States, Europe, Mexico, Japan, China and Indonesia. Kush Tart's offer would see it acquire all of Caltex's shares by way of a scheme of arrangement at an indicative price of $34.50 cash per share, less any dividends declared by Caltex. Caltex has been busy this year, shoring up its convenience and petrol business as it grapples with a significant downturn in profit margin. It announced on Monday it will offload a half stake in 250 service stations around Australia into a $1.1 billion listed property trust. Caltech said it was planning the initial public offering, or IPO, in the first half of 2020 for the 49% stake in the fuel and convenience stations after a wide-ranging review of its 500-strong retail network. It will retain a majority 51% interest in the 250 sites and enter into long-term lease agreements for each service station. Caltech will pay the new real estate trust up to $100 million rent in the first year. The rationalisation of the group's convenience network will see it put 50 non-core full-fuel outlets, mainly in prime inner-city locations across the country, up for sale for an estimated $240 million. But the Canadian bid has cemented suspicions in the market that the service station IPO was a defensive tactic by Caltex, which has been under pressure to unlock value from its portfolio, including its $834 million pile of franking credits. And fintech payments juggernaut Afterpay breached anti-money laundering laws because it initially received bad legal advice about how to comply from an unnamed law firm, an independent auditor's found. The audit found Afterpay was in breach because an unnamed top-tier law firm incorrectly decided the buy-now, pay-later company was not providing loans to consumers, but providing factoring or financing services to merchants. The incorrect designation meant Afterpay's anti-money laundering controls focused on merchants selling goods rather than the individual consumers that use Afterpay to finance and pay for goods. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be interviewing Stefan Rust, CEO of Bitcoin.com. And I'll be talking to Rabobank economist Michael Ivory on how the prospect of a meaningful US-China trade deal is looking less and less likely. And of course, I'll be bringing all the week's news. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at TalkingBizBiz, on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Have a great week. Take care. Be good. And looking forward to bringing Talking Business next week. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. 
Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.